Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. I thank you uh, for this, uh, this letter to the Hebrews. Uh, we thank you uh, for this individual who wrote it, who we have no idea who that is. Um, we thank you, Lord, that by your spirit you used them uh, to reach out to these Hebrew people that we don't know who they are or where they were when this letter was written. But we thank you for the richness, the depth of this letter um, that is so grounded in the Old Testament. Father, we thank you uh, for the glory of Christ that shines forth from this letter, that he uh, is set above all, he is greater than all and above all. And we ask, Lord, that through our time today of worshiping you, Lord, you would help us to understand what is being said in today's section, that we would understand the the context and the history, that ultimately, Lord, that we would move closer to Jesus wherever we are in our relationship with you. Father, we ask that you would help us to see uh, things in our life and our heart that we place above Christ and that we would uh, remove them by your strength and by your help uh, so that Christ would be in the right place in our lives. We pray that we would be able to uh, connect with him, that we would be tethered to him, and that he would guide us uh, through the days of our life. We love you, Lord. We praise you. And we ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, through the end of the chapter. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, And I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves. And with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, 
having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that it would take root in our hearts, that we would grow in our relationship with you. May this time be fruitful for each one of us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so starting with verse 9 here, we read, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. And so with that last phrase, though we are speaking in that, this way, it's probably a good time to sort of uh, give a reminder of, of, of where we are in Hebrews. Um, we're sort of in a transition within a parenthetical statement. If we were to go back to chapter 5, verse 10, the author um, had been building his case that Jesus is greater than all things. God, God in the past had spoken in many, many forms and many ways, but now he's speaking to us in his son. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the priests. Uh, this, this priest Melchizedek is sort of introduced. This is when Pastor Barry came and shared. He, he began to, to unpack who Melchizedek is. And as he's unpacking who Melchizedek is, he realized that he has a limitation. And the limitation is their immaturity. And in verse 11, he writes, concerning him, that's Melchizedek, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And so there's a bit of encouragement. Uh, uh, verses 11 through 14 are sort of the, the, the negative aspect of, of the correction. Um, he says, you, you should be teachers by this time, but you're still learning your spiritual ABCs. And then we come to chapter 6, the first three verses, and, and it, it's more positive uh, he encourages us, let us press on to maturity, that they're uh, to continue to grow and to, to work out their salvation. Not, not to be saved, but that they've been saved and they're to, to exercise, to put it to use, put it into practice. Then we came to verses 4 through 8, which are arguably the, the most challenging verses in the whole of Scripture. Uh, People have wrestled with these verses. Uh, they've debated them. They've uh, landed in a couple different places. You can get the message. It's online. They're there. I don't want to rehash it all here today. But, but it seemed that within this church that existed um, in about A.D. 65 to 68, a, a, a few-year window, we know that the temple was still operating uh, following uh, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. There were many who had followed after Jesus, but after a time had drifted away and gone back under the law, had gone back to the temple, and started uh, continuing in the, the, the ritual of making sacrifices. And so the author addresses those who they thought were followers of the Messiah who had drifted back and were now... Uh, speaking against the Messiah. But those verses are terrifying. Um, for, for anybody who knows Christ and is uh, 
humble and reads those verses with a, with an honest sort of evaluation of the, themselves, it's, it's hard not to get rattled. And I believe that the author of Hebrews recognizes this. There's such a, a, a wonderful example for those of us who are involved in other people's lives, which you should be, whether it's spiritual things, whether it's coaching and athletics, whether it's parenting, whether it's uh, fellow people that you work with, that if you have to correct somebody to sort of end with a positive note or to start with a positive note and and to sort of reaffirm and affirm to them as sort of correction is coming. And it's very clear that the author, as he's writing, he recognizes, he senses, he anticipates that as the church reads this letter, they might start really beating themselves up and that's not what I'm trying to accomplish here. And so in verse 9 he says, but beloved, there's a huge seismic shift in chapter 6. Up to this point, he's referred to them as them and those and others. And now he says, but beloved. Um, but So when I say back in chapter 6, I'm arguing with myself in my mind. So we come to verse 3 in chapter 6. He's talking to them. Then verse 4 through 8, the difficult verses. Now that's them and those. We come to verse 9. He says, but beloved. The only time he uses this word, it's a, it, 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 some translations I think, dear friends. This is a pastor who loves these people, who cares for them. It's, I think I just said it's the only time in the book that he uses this word beloved. But, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you that accompany salvation. Even though we are speaking in this way, he says, I know I'm speaking harshly. I know I'm giving you strong warning. I, I don't want you to think that I'm condemning you to the point that there's, there's no hope for you. He says there's good things for you. God is not done with you. F.F. Um, F. Bruce writes this. He says the writer encourages them with the assurance that they have everything to lose if they fall back, but everything to gain if they press on. And so the tone shifts in verses 9 through 12. This is like a, a cool cup of water if you've been weed whacking all day. You know, there's something you're out there in the dust and it's like, I'm so thirsty. And then you get that cup of cool water and you can just like gulp it all down. And it just is so refreshing. These verses are so, so encouraging. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. And these things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking to you in this way, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and are still ministering to the saints. So he starts with this, this negative, or he says that God is not unjust. To, to put this in simpler terms, he's saying God is just. God is righteous. God is faithful. God is free of sin. God, uh, he, he goes on to say, he's not going to forget what you've done. He acknowledges that there is fruit in their life. Maybe not as much as he'd like to see as, you know, verse 12 uh, in chapter 5, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you 
have need again for somebody to teach you your spiritual ABCs is my translation there. But he says, nevertheless, there's fruit in your lives. I can see that you're living for God, that you're loving God. It's evident. I've, I've heard about what you've done and what you're doing, both past and pre- present tense. And, and the means that they're loving God, it's, it's in how they're behaving to one another, how they're treating the fellow believers. So they're loving God by loving others. And this reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew 25. You guys all know he's with the disciples and he begins sharing with them. And in verse 40, he, he, it's kind of like this story he's telling. And then he sort of wraps up and he says, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. And they sort of look confused. And they're like, what are you talking about, Lord? What are, like, what, who were these people that we ministered to that was unto you? And he starts, being, he starts you know, the, the person in prison. And, and we so often use this for prison ministry, which is way, way, way out of context. Like, I'm not saying that prison ministry is bad at all. In the context, these are believers, those who had professed Jesus as the Messiah, were arrested and hauled into prison, and that the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ would go and they'd minister to their brothers and sisters in Christ. They would care for those that within the body who were least of them. And Jesus said, when you did this to them, when you cared for those that followed me, you were doing this to me. And if you were to follow Matthew 25 down to verse 45, he gives the opposite, that if you don't do these or you didn't do these things, there's huge consequence. And so when I, when I see these encouraging words, sort of the application or the thing that we should ponder is how are we treating one another? In the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, they'll, they'll know you're of the Father by your unity, by your love for one another, how you care for each other. I can't help but to think if, you know, am, am I getting short with others? Am I getting irritated by people who God has called me to love? And, and when I find myself getting irritated with others, if nobody in this room, of course, I'm not like, but it's like a check engine light. Like, why am I getting so irritated? And I can almost certainly guarantee you that the problem is not out there. The problem is within you. And so it should cause us to sort of reflect. But he encourages them. He says, you've loved God by loving others. Uh, Moving on to verse 11. He says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so, as to, uh, so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those through faith and patience inherited the promise. Um, just a couple things here. So, so there seems to be an aim of the author that, w- that what he wants the readers and for us to accomplish is to, to, to grab onto this hope that has been presented to us, that there would be assurance for us, that he desires for us to know confidently that we're in Christ. As I read the New Testament over and over and over again, there's verses like 1 John 5.13 that at, at the end of 1 John, the Apostle John, at the last part of his life, 
he writes to them and he says, the whole purpose of this book, I'm writing these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life, that there's assurance. God doesn't want us to walk around sort of like not knowing if we're okay with him. God wants us to know that we have eternal life in him. He wants us to know that it's not based on our work. It's totally and completely based on the work that Jesus did on the cross. And in him, there's security. He talks about the means of attaining this hope. And there's this contrast between these, these, these two thoughts. On, on the one hand, there's, there's diligence and perseverance in their relationship with God, contrasted with not being sluggish or lazy, apathetic. In verse 12, so you will not be sluggish, that Greek word. I think some translations use the word lazy, which is a totally appropriate, appropriate word for that. Hebrews 5.11, at the beginning of this parenthetical statement, it said you've become dull of hearing. And he says, I, I want you to live out your faith in Christ. I think of Paul in Philippians 2.12 that says uh, uh, to, to work out your salvation. And it's not the idea of trying to earn your salvation. The, the, the idea is every January 1st, what do people do? They order the new treadmill. They get the, tre- they get the new uh, membership at 24-Hour Fitness. They're committed to health and fitness, and they're going to go all the way this year. By February, <laughs> that treadmill's on Craigslist. <laughs> with a whole bunch of them. The 24-hour fitness you wrestle with, should I cancel the membership or should I go back or should I just hold on and never use it? The, the idea of working out your salvation isn't about getting your salvation. It's like, hey, you've been saved. You've been indwelt and sealed by the Spirit of God. You've been given gifts to use. Use them. Work them out. Be diligent. Be faithful. Walk with God. Don't grow lazy. Don't grow apathetic. Don't don't drift. He says, be imitators. The third thing in this section, look at those who have walked with Christ before you, who have run their race. This is why I think being connected intergenerationally, there's so many churches that are so divided. Uh, uh, There's the singles group. There's the little kids. There's the old people. There's the single old people. There's the married old people. There's the the working class. And they segregate them all so nobody that's at different levels in their walk interacts with one another. And you're robbed of the ability to see this person who's been walking with the Lord for 40 years. For me, who've been walking with the Lord for 20 years, I have so much to learn from that person. And if I've been walking with the Lord for two weeks, I have value in the person who's been walking with the Lord for a year, two years, or five years, or 40 years. And to the person who's been walking with the Lord for 20 years, you should have a young Timothy that's been walking with the Lord for a week, a year, uh, that that we're all in this together. He says, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. This is super convicting. This is, who, who are the people that are influencing you in your life? How are you influencing others in your life? What do your children see as it pertains to your relationship to Christ as they watch you day in and day out? Too many of us say, oh, do as I say, not as I do. 
It's convicting. This author is going to continue to make the point. Look up. Look at those who have run the race. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It's beautiful. After following the great chapter of the heroes of the faith, listing all of these people who walked faithfully with the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, he says, in light of this cloud of witnesses, and, it, and it pitch, it's the picture of us being like in Qualcomm Stadium, or what is it? Is that it's Qualcomm now, or Jack Mar- whatever, uh, Qualcomm. Uh, and now we're thinking about the Chargers, and I don't want to do that. So <laughs> let's think about something else. That you're in an arena, and everybody in the stands are those who have gone before us. But it's our turn to be in the arena, to run the race, and we're to look to them, to our, their example. It's this beautiful, powerful picture. So as we begin thinking about this, as we, as we read verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, we begin thinking, who are people we can look to? He's going to go to Abraham, and he's going to say, let me tell you about Abraham. We're going to look to Abraham, our great father, to the Jewish people, he is the, the foundation of them all. Uh, for us, who are followers of Christ but aren't Jewish, we've been grafted in. We are children of Abraham. They would know this story by the back of their hand. They would know all of the details. We, not so much. Even if you know your Bible, you probably aren't as like dialed up on Abraham as they were. So verse 13, it says, when, For when God had made the promise to Abraham... Since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. So the author is quoting from Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. Um, They would have known this story as it unfolded. They would be able to recall all the details. Um, But for my sake... I would like to review it so that we get all the details clear. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, we're going to sort of fly over 10 chapters of Genesis so that we have sort of clarity. Because as he quotes from Hebrews or Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, he's going to apply this and, and share some things with us. But we need to understand the context of the story so that we can rightly apply it to our own lives and truly understand what we're imitating in Abraham's life. So where to begin? Chapter 12 is what I said. Uh, We're going to look at the Abrahamic covenant. This is a covenant that God made with Abraham. And it begins in... Chapter 12, verse 1. And we'll read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram's name will turn into Abraham later, and Sarai's name will turn into Sarah later. Uh, Through the course of this, I'll probably just refer to them as Abraham and Sarah to make it simpler. So the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. So, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, 
That's the Abrahamic covenant. In this covenant, God basically gives Abraham two promises. That through Abraham, he, he is going to bless him with a great nation, sort of meaning that through him this nation will emerge and he'll give him a, a, a great um, portion of land. And in this sort of twofold promise, God says, what I need you to do is I need you to leave your family, I need you to leave your relatives, and I need you to go to a land that I'll show you. God gives him the what he's going to do. He doesn't give him the when or the how, which is so often how God works in our lives. So he has his marching orders. And in verse 4, we're told, So when Abram went forth, as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Wait, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. Okay, so he departs. We learn that he's 75. We know that his wife Sarah is 10 years younger than he is, so she's 65. The time in the story is critical. Uh, Genesis, who cover, Genesis that covers a whole bunch of land chrono- chronologically makes specific time markers in the life of Abraham. Uh, we'll see that the Abrahamic covenant is mentioned, how to word it, it's mentioned a couple times. We're going to look at four different instances Three of the instances are sort of like ratifications by God that, or that God's going to ratify the Abrahamic covenant. So God has given him a very general understanding of it. Uh, later when we look at it, God's going to give a little bit more detail and then the third time God's going to give even more detail. And so right now I just want to point out that Abraham took his, his, his uh, wife. He has no children. She has no children. Um, they have servants, or uh, he was, a, you know, he's a wealthy man. So we servants, slaves. Um, this is his staff. He takes his crew to this land. We'll also see that he took this guy Lot, his nephew. Doesn't seem that he was supposed to take his son nephew. Um, during this time, if Abraham was to die his possessions could go to his family member, a family member, if they were there. If they happen to be really far away, it's not like today where if you die and you have a family member on the East Coast and you're on the West Coast and you're all alone, you die. Uh, Today, an attorney will contact you on the East Coast and say, hey, guess what? You have this uncle so-and-so that you didn't even know. You're entitled to all of his assets. Oh, hey, great. During this day, ownership, and like, you know, ownership's nine-tenths of the law, like it was a hundred, ten-tenths of the law. Uh, so if Abram died and he was away from his family, it would go to the, the senior servant. And so God has told Abraham what he's going to do. He hasn't told him how or when. And Abram seems to take Lot along to sort of give God a hand up. Okay, God, I don't. You've said this. I have no kids. I'm 75. Sarah's barren. I'll bring my nephew with me. Maybe this will be a way that you can sort of fulfill what you said. Now, the reason I think that is, if you continue through the story, 
and we're going to land on basically chapter 13, verse 14. The way the story sort of unfolds really quickly for the sake of time, uh, they, they, they go away. As they move up, um, the shepherds that oversaw Lot's flocks and Abraham's flocks were two different groups of guys. They were keeping their assets separate. Um, they started squabbling over the land, that there wasn't enough vegetation. All, Abraham's guys saying, all of Lot's animals are eating our food. And Lot's guys are saying, all of Abraham's guys are eating our food. Abraham pulls Lot aside and says, we got we to gotta part ways. You tell me which, you just look out, you figure out where you want to go. If you say you want to go to the right, I'll go to the left. You say you want to go to the left, I'll go to the right. Whatever you do, I'll go the opposite direction. There'll be peace between us. Chapter 13, verse 13, Abraham finally departs. God has not spoken to Abraham up to this point since he gave him the Abrahamic covenant. Immediately when Lot departs and gets away from Abraham, we're told in verse 14 that the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, And in verses 14 through 17, he reaffirms, he restates the very same covenant that he had made with Abram. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have this land. Trust me. Now we get to, well, let's move ahead to chapter 15. In chapter 15, verse 1, we're going to see the second uh, statement of the Abrahamic covenant as it's ratified here, a new piece of information is given. In chapter 15, verse 1, we read, after these things, and you have to make the question, well, what things? Well, I'm glad you asked. Well, what happens in chapter 14? I think it's like the, it's the first documented world war. It's the first time in Bible history where nations war against nations. And in the midst of this first recorded battle, Lot is taken hostage. Abraham gathers up a guy, runs a hostage rescue situation, gets his, his nephew free. They go their separate ways as, as Abraham's sort of returning to his place. In verses 17 through 24, the story of Melchizedek happens, which is very critical in Hebrews because it's coming next week. It's, 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 we're in the midst of it. We're easing into things. And so Abraham, as he's coming back from this battle, he sees this Melchizedek, this priest. This is, this is a different priest, a different line, a different order. We know very little about him. If it wasn't for Hebrews, we would know, like basically this is what we would know about him. We know that Abraham offers him a tenth of everything. He ties to him. And then we come to our story Chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, well, what things? The, the war and Melchizedek. The word of the Lord came to Abram Abram, in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord, God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So he alludes to the reality, Lot is gone. There's nobody in his home that is of his DNA that is eligible to to receive the inheritance. He has this guy, Eliezer of Damascus, who's an heir in his household. And Abram said, since you have given me no offspring, one born of my house is my heir. 
Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. So new information. So now for the first time in the Abrahamic covenant that that he's going to be a great nation, that he's going to have a whole lot of land, for the first time it's revealed to him that this child is going to come through his flesh, his DNA. And verse 5, And he, God, took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And probably one of the most powerful verses in the Bible that's quoted all through the New Testament, we're told that he, that's Abram, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it or imputed, credited his account to him as righteousness. God said it. Abraham believed. Abraham, in his faith, his account is credited with God's righteousness. And if we stopped here, we could really elevate Abraham to say, oh, he's a really awesome, great guy. But that's not really how the story goes. And I'm super thankful that's not how the story goes. Um, One of the things that Anna likes to read, she loves reading biographies about pastor's wives. She's sort of read, like, all, like, if they exist, she's probably read them. And so this last, uh, back in May, I go to a pastor's conference. I'm, like, digging through their their library or their, li- their bookstore. I see this obscure little book about a pastor's wife that was married to some guy in England who was really famous, like, many, many years ago. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be, like, the hero coming home with some obscure pastor's wife book to give to my wife, which th- that's what she would love. And so on vacation, she's been reading it, and I'm kind of like, hey, how's the book? Not really caring about how the book is, but more caring about, like, how'd my gift go, you know? And she's like, huh? I'm like, huh? Like, uh-oh. I'm like, what's wrong with the book? It's about a pastor's wife. You should love it. And she's like, yeah, it's written by her daughters and granddaughters, and, and like, you read this book, and they just look like they were the perfect people. They, it, says, it literally says they never fought and that she never got frustrated. And she's like, this book is just a bunch of lies, you know? <laughs> like, and she's like, it's not encouraging to me. She's like, I want a book that shows the struggle that people go through because that's encouraging to me. I'm like, that's, a, you know, it's true. And if we looked at the people of the Bible and they were all a bunch of perfect people and we looked at ourselves, there'd be no hope for us. But I love that the Bible paints the picture. The, <laughs> the best of men, as Alistair Begg says, are men at best. And so if we stopped here, he believed in the Lord and it was credited to his account as God's righteousness. Awesome, he's hero of the faith, great man. But if you keep reading, let's just skip verse 7 because that's God speaking. Then in verse 8 he says, he said, O Lord, how may I know that I will possess it? He has these doubts. Like, I, I don't get how this is going to happen. We read in verse 6 his great faith, then it goes into that it sure looks like he's doubting him. And so the whole story unfolds. Verse 12, um, or leading up to verse 12, God is going to respond to Abram's doubt with an oath. So chapter 12, when the Abrahamic covenant was first stated, it was God stated it. Chapter 15, the statement is going to be combined with an oath. 
a sort of a doubling down. And what would happen, we see that Abram gets terrified because God starts getting things. He says, or no, God tells him to collect the items. Excuse me, verse 9. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abraham's collecting all this stuff, and he knows what's about to go down, and he is getting absolutely terrified. Uh, Because what you did during that day, Brian's in my line of sight. He's going to be my target. I'm going to sell Brian a car. Brian, I have a car. I'm going to sell it to you for $1,000. If you just make... uh, $100 a month for the next 10 months. I did simple math that I can do in my head up here. Um, I'll give you the car. I'll give you a warranty on it that while you're making payments, anything bad happens to it, I'll I'll cover you the distance and you pay the 100 bucks. This is just in theory. What we would do is we'd find, find a little place in the land where there were two sort of valleys that came together. We would get these animals. We would split them in half from head to toe. We would lay one half on one side of the mountain. We would lay one half on the other side. We'd do with all the animals. And then we would walk through the blood, passing each other. And what we were saying is, my word is my bond. And if I don't fulfill my side, then this will be me. And if you don't fulfill your side of the obligation, this will be you. And so Abraham's told to get all the stuff. And so he's terrified, rightly. Like, he can't fulfill, like, any vow with God. And so then we're told that God puts Abram to sleep and that God makes this vow or this, uh, not the vow, uh, oath is the word I'm looking for. God makes this oath with himself, which tells us that the Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral covenant, which means it's not conditional on Abraham. It's only conditional on God. So no matter what Abraham does, this covenant is good because God is the one who made the covenant and everything depends on him. Okay. Fast forwarding a little bit here because we've got to move along. The story is fascinating to me. It, we come to chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Okay. Going back to the Abrahamic covenant. We know that Abraham was 75 years old. Sarah was 65 years old. We'll learn by the end of this chapter, verse 16, the story has moved forward 11 years. Abram's now 86, Sarah's now 76. God has told him what he would do, not the how or the when. The how has a little bit more clarification because in the beginning of chapter 15, we got new information that this, this child would come through Abraham's seed. Nothing was said about Sarah. So like bringing Lot along, they want to help out God or give him the opportunity to move. And they think, well, God never said anything about me. He just said, you, Abraham, I have this housemate. 
why don't you go ahead and produce a child with her and maybe that will help God sort of fulfill this promise. And so they, they do. And we're told at the end, at, at 86 years old, Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Between one verse, chapter 17, verse 1, we see uh, the third time the Abrahamic covenant is ratified. Another, and i got to do quick math here. Um, I'm not going to do it. I'll just read it. I, I wrote it down somewhere. Uh, 24 years has elapsed from the first time. So now when Abram was 99 years old, so he, he jumps from 86 to 99, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him a whole bunch of things. Everything from verse 1 all the way down to verse 8, you'll see a bunch of I will, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Everything I promised you, Abraham, I said I would do it. You don't need to do anything. Stop trying to help me. That's my translation. He said, now you need to go circumcise everybody in your household. Everybody's getting circumcised. This new idea of circumcision, it'll be a sign of the covenant between me and your household. It'll separate you. It'll make you stand apart from the world as a whole. Then when you get down to verse 16, or 15 we'll start at, then God said to Abraham, he has his new name, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. There's new information. God's already said the seed will come through Abraham. Now he says it's going to come through Sarah. This promise comes to the two of you. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. <laughs> a lot of faith there, right? And he said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God, I took care of it. There's Ishmael. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. We come down to the, the end of this. Uh, we see that the circumcision procedure happens to the whole household. We can go fly over uh, chapter 18. We can fly over chapter 19. We can fly over chapter 20. Seems like a lot of time has elapsed. We come to chapter 21. And within the year, we're told, then the Lord took note of Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. At the appointed time which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. To him. Okay. 25 years has elapsed. We see this faith of Abraham mature and grow. There's setbacks and stumblings along the way. The things that God is asking him to trust with him with are his family. His life, his livelihood, these are 
huge things that God is telling him, I'm going to do this, but he doesn't fill in the blanks for how he's going to do it. If this isn't relevant to us, God doesn't give us a book that fills out the details like, hey, buy that car, don't buy the car, buy that house, marry that girl, don't marry that girl. He doesn't give us any of that. We, we walk by faith and we trust it or we're commanded to. We see, we see Abraham making these setbacks, but then God's faithfulness shines through this. It, it's, it's beautiful. Over the course of this 25 years to see his faith grow and mature, but God is not done with Abraham. I'll never forget when Grace was born. I know I've shared this before, but it's uh, my firstborn child. She's about five months old. It's the first fever that I remember. So naturally, I jumped. It's the plague because I've been watching a lot of Little House on the Prairie, and I'm thinking, oh, this five-year-old daughter's going to, like, die because she's running the fever of (laughs) 99.3. Like, I need to get help. This is what am I going to do? Now, Titus, he could be bleeding in the backyard. It's like, ah, he'll be fine now. Don't worry about it. You know, child number four is very different than child number one. But can you imagine how Isaac was, like, probably baby? Like, the whole everything is on the son. The only son. And now in chapter 22, we believe this is, well, it's hard to say exactly how much time has, has elapsed, but I believe that it would be a very conservative estimate to say that he was 20 years old, and it certainly works for the math, um, the math of my mind, not the math anywhere else. Um, He's referred to child, this term child, it's got a range from five years old to 35 years old, often used for 30-year-olds regularly. As the story sort of unfolds, Isaac's asked to do something, uh, namely carry the items that he's going to make a sacrifice with up the hill. So you think this is like clearly like a teenage adult man that has the capacity to carry. So so most, most scholars say he could easily be 20. So we're 45 years after possible. I mean, we're, I'm saying, I'm guesstimating. But I think it's a fair guesstimate to say around, you know, anywhere from 40 to 50 years after that first promise. Now God speaks to Abraham again. Verse 1, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, which I will tell you, the mountain which he would tell him is actually the spot where the Dome of the Rock is, where everything in the world is exploding. Like like in Israel, when you go to the Dome of the Rock, this is where so much happened. So we go through the story. They pack everything up. Uh, Up to this point, Abraham's always sort of like, brought a backup plan to kind of help God. This time he brings nothing. He brings his son. He brings the sticks. Whatever's required of sacrificing. A go- like I've never done it, so I don't know all the details. Um, but he packs up all the stuff that's needed to sacrifice his son. They go up. You guys all know the story. It gets to the point where Abraham's like this to his son. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord speaks to him and says, stop what you're doing. Verse 12 or verse 11 But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abram, 
Abram, he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And without getting on too far of a tangent, the angel of the Lord, this is likely the pre-incarnate Christ speaking from heaven to Abraham. And Isaac being this type of Christ who would ultimately be sacrificed for us. It says, For I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him, a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for the burnt offering in the place of his son. Abram called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh is the word in Hebrew. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. This is what Hebrews is quoting. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and of the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Okay. We spent a lot of time there so that we could understand the so what of Hebrews. So hopefully I have a fuller picture of what happened back with Abraham. We're not Jewish. We don't know that story by the back of our hand. So now we come back to Hebrews. We find ourselves in verse 16. I'd read verse 13. Well, let's start back there. For when God had made the, the promise, the Abrahamic covenant, three different times over the course of 25 years, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, patiently, how patient? We want to say 25 years? Do we want to say 45 years when Isaac was being sacrificed? I don't know, you fill in the blank, but patient means patience. We all joke, but we never pray for patience because we, that means God will force us to become patient and it's never pleasant. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. We get an argument, where do we go? You don't handle it on your own, you take them to the people's court. You go to the people's court. I don't think that they swear on the Bible. I think it's that way. You, you, you know, We used to put our hand on the Bible saying that what I'm saying before God, I'm taking an oath. Today, I think we just raise our right hand and we're saying like, by the laws that are over me that they can basically throw me in the slammer. I'll tell the truth because if I don't, you know, in all the courtroom scenes as the prosecuting attorney's coming up and there's somebody to testify who's not even on trial there just to testify. They're asking the questions. They know the answers that they want to get. They know that the, the person has the information. The person's trying to like avoid the questions and the attorney kind of goes, <clears throat> do I need to remind you, sir, that you are under oath right now? And they're sort of like the, oh, yes, sir. And he gives the information. He's saying when, when, when man on his own accord, we're not trustworthy enough. 
to just say, this is what I'm saying, you can take it at, at, uh, you could take it at that. <laughs> you're a man, you're a sinful person, you lie, cheat, still. You'll look me in the eye and tell me one thing, but you mean something else. Let's, let's, we have to swear on something greater. But God is different. Verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, I'm just going to stop there. So verse 17, it's a little bit hard to read. The New American Standard, it kind of like, it's so literal and wooden. But he says, God, there's two, there are two things here. The first is God can't lie. So in Genesis chapter 12, when God just simply says to Abram that he's going to do these things, it says the old saying goes, God said it, it's done. God cannot lie. God is, he, he, he can't distort the truth. He, his character is such that if he says something, it will be done, period. But then as the story unfolds, chapter 15 God doubles down. And not only does he say it, but he takes an oath. Remember, the animals walking between. And the point that the author is trying to make is we're looking at Abraham, how he walked by faith, and the reason that he's able to walk by faith is because nothing was conditional on himself. Everything was on God. And if God says it, you can trust it, period. He was patient. He was persistent as he lived out his life. And these last few verses, there's the so what. This is what the author is trying to get at, and we can go through this quickly. We who have taken refuge would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor. Now, we're thinking nautical, and it is nautical. And I almost want to stop here to, to, to read a historical illustration because when we hear anchor, we think of a ship. And for the Navy guys in here, which I'm one of, we think of, a, uh, of the anchor that you drop down at the bottom of the sea uh, and sort of holds the boat there. That's not how it was during this time. Uh, an English guy, Stuart Aliot, I'm going to say is his last name, he writes this illustration of historical seamanship during this day, tied into this verse. He writes, in every harbor there was a great stone. Some examples which we can, st- can still be seen today in some harbors There were many of them. Each such such stone was securely and immovably embedded by the water's edge, known in Greek as the agkura, or anchor. The science of sailing was not as far as, as advanced as it is today. Very often, by means of its sails alone, a ship could not get into harbor, especially if the wind was against it. When this happened, one of the crew would go ahead in a rowboat. This man, who was known as the forerunner, would attach a line from the struggling ship to the anchor, which was sure and steadfast. Those remaining on the ship's ship simply had to hold on to the line and by patient and persevering effort to pull on it. If they did this without letting go or slacking their effort, they arrived safely in port every time. So I hope this picture, I want to read through this, and hopefully that picture helps us to understand what the writer is saying. We have taken refuge, would have a strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. 
this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what he wants us to know is that our hope is Jesus, period. Our anchor of the soul is Jesus. He uses this picture of forerunner, which is super significant, but we'll have to wait till next week to get this. He's getting back to the subject of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a different order of, of the priestly line of Aaron. The priestly line of Aaron, they were representative priests. So they were simply men going in on behalf of the men that they represented. Hopefully God would hear them. Jesus is a totally different priest. Jesus was a forerunner. He went in, secured the line, made it safe for us, split the veil in two and says, come, you can enter now because of what I've done. And he's become our high priest forever. He encourages us to keep hold of Christ. Whatever life throws at you, whatever family struggles you're going through, whatever financial struggles, whatever health struggles, if you keep a tight hold of Christ, it doesn't matter what's thrown at you because he is greater than anything that can come your way. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this story. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the significance of the things that we are studying. I know that there's a lot here. We struggle to keep up, to follow what your word is saying. But Lord, it's clear that Jesus is greater than anything. He's greater than our sin. He made the perfect sacrifice for us. Everything is conditioned on what he did. And so as we look to Abraham as our example to imitate, we see a man who wasn't perfect. We see a man that struggled to see how you were going to do what you promised that you would do. And we see that he tried to help you along the way. But what we learn through his consistency, what we see through his perseverance, is that you're the one who is faithful. You're the one who did it all. Father, you tell us to keep our eyes on Christ. You ask us not to drift from him. You ask us to be diligent. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as he is, as you want us to see him, that we would walk with him, that we would live for him, that we would honor you with our lives. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.